Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. This is Drew. How's it going, everybody? Hello, hello, everyone. So, today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do basically a book club type of review of uh, another comic that we want to expose the world to. Today, the comic that we're going to be discussing is Box Office Poison. It's by Alex Robinson, who wrote and uh, illustrated it. So, you know, it's something that he clearly cared a lot about and put a lot of his effort and heart into. So, Drew, if you have any of the more of the details that you could give to our listeners, please fill us in. Okay, so Box Office Poison by Alex Robinson was a comic book series originally serialized by an independent comic book publisher, Antarctic Press, back in October 1996 through October 2000. It ran for 21 issues. It's a black and white indie comic. When it was collected into a trade paperback edition, Top Shelf became the publisher. The trade paperback edition was published in, I believe, 2001. It gets reprinted pretty regularly. There are a few different editions floating around. You can find it on Comixology or order a physical copy from your local comic book store or online retailer. So Box Office Poison. It's a work that one or at least was nominated for quite a few awards. Alex Robinson, he might not be, your nece- he's not necessarily like a household name, even if you're a comics fan. But back in the early 2000s, he definitely had a higher profile because of books like Box Office Poison and Tricked, which were nominated for different awards. So Box Office Poison was nominated for a Harvey, an Eisner, and an Ignatz Award, uh, although it didn't win. Alex Robinson himself did win an Eisner that year for talent deserving of wider recognition. Also, the French edition of Box Office Poison won an award at Angoulême in 2005, which is one of the biggest international comics festivals in the entire world. So it's a book and a creator with accolades, you know? These ain't anything to to sneeze at. It's a hefty piece of work. It's 600-something pages. I guess we decided to read it because we both ended up finding cheap copies of it at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's certainly happenstance, but I, I don't I don't want our listeners to think that that's the only reason to read it is if you can find a cheap copy. It's it's certainly something deserving of uh any good po- comics podcast that's worth its salt, I'd say. Yeah, exactly. You and we, we both already knew who Alex Robinson was, so I was going to buy this comic at some point anyway. I just got lucky that I yeah. found it for cheap. But I actually read his uh, second big book, Tricked, uh, like many years ago. I, I read that maybe not right when it came out, but maybe like a little, like a year or two after it came out. Yeah. And Tricked, and is, it, kind of, it's, Tricked is kind of similar to Box Office Poison. It's even got like one of the main characters in Tricked is in box office poison but it's not really a sequel to it and he also alex robinson also did a a graphic novel called too cool to be forgotten which was uh that was would you say that's one of the few time travel stories that you can appreciate albert (laughs) (laughs) uh i i would definitely say that um 
I'm trying to see if there's a way I can finesse it so that I don't have to acknowledge that it's necessarily about the time travel itself. <laughs> <laughs> Albert, no like time travel. Yeah, I don't want to give it that level of credit. Uh, I, I will say this. Um, for a story about time travel, it's... it's uh, The time travel isn't really the the the, the primary thing to focus on in that story it's really more about his experiences and his formative experiences and reevaluating those to see uh reevaluating his formative experiences to help him work out his emotional problems in in the modern day so that's you go. i i prefer i prefer that to he he went back in time to, you know, sleep with a teenage girl that he always wanted to go back to go out <laughs> with, and now his life is better because of it. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's interesting that we both read Alex Robinson's later works and then went back to his first big comic. So we, we it's, it's kind of like doing our own version of time traveling, we're we're working backwards in his bi- yeah. into his bibliography. Well, to be fair, um, I think my first exposure to uh, Alex Robinson was from you. So, I believe you. If I want to say you probably read Tricked first, and I think you gave me, I think you gave me your copy or something like that, and then I read that. Mm-hmm. And then that's you gave what, me back my copy because I still have it. Oh. Oh, maybe you just let me borrow it or something like that. <laughs> Did you think I would give away something that precious to you for free? Uh, have I ever given you a gift? Uh, you you give me the gift of your honeyed voice and your your sweet charisma and hey, hey Albert. <laughs> hey Albert. Uh, Albert. Yeah, this hey. is a totally different hey, podcast Albert. than I was expecting to be on. <laughs> what are you wearing right now, Albert? Uh, whatever it is I'm wearing, it's not enough to hide the chills that I'm feeling. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Thank that you. is a good answer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, there is no amount of coverage that will warm me from those chills. <laughs> <laughs> So we are here to talk about Box Office Poison, a really great indie comic. Albert, if we were to give a brief synopsis of this book, what would it be? So without giving away too much or getting too into detail, I just I think I would just say that it's the story of a small community of friends uh, just living out their lives in their 20s, just somewhat aimlessly and trying to sort out their various issues and problems, whether it be professional or personal, um, you know, including relationships or uh, familial problems, whatever they may have. And it just takes a, a slice of their, of their life, a, a period of time in their lives where just so much is going on 
and yeah. it just follows them through this period. And yeah, that I, I would say that that's the brief explanation of it, uh, description of it, and it makes perfect sense that it's a story where if I had to guess, like, I'm not sure what everyone's exact age is. And there are, there are definitely people who are diff- in different age brackets in uh, over the course of the story, people that we follow. But primarily, I would say everyone's, I, I think, in their 20s. Yeah, I believe so. You know, yeah, which makes perfect sense because um, so much of the story is about again it's about being aimless and i do think that people in their 20s it's a pretty common theme for people just exiting college and entering the world and uh being adults for the first time and having to reconcile all of their all of the different feelings and experiences that they're having yeah it's got a cast of I don't know, maybe a dozen people, yeah. notable characters. So it it really is a hard series to just give a really brief synopsis because everybody, every character has their own plot and story, but the work as a whole entity, it's it's not quite such a clear cut. You start from point A and end at point B. Yeah. And that's kind of the end, you know, because all these different characters have stories. Some of them interweave with each other. Some of them don't necessarily uh, affect other characters. But every character still has a story. And they all live in this, in, uh, I believe it's New York City. They all live yeah. in New York City and uh, occasionally cross paths. Yeah. And... I think that's also a testament to just Alex Robinson's skill because, um, you know, someone's ability to write such a large ensemble cast, that is a hard thing to do and to be to to write it in such a way that it's seamless and not clumsy and uh, just painful to read. Yeah, but like I, it's it's. That that should be a testament to Alex Robinson's skill as a writer in and of itself. Yeah, definitely. It's like what you were saying earlier, too. You mentioned it's a slice of life type of story. Uh, I mean, that's I'd say that's pretty accurate because yeah. this is really uh, it's, it's like 600 pages long. But the story takes place over a period of, I don't know, maybe six or eight months or something. I don't think it's really specified exactly how much time passes, but I'm yeah. pretty sure it's it's not more than a year. So it really is like this, a slice of life uh, in terms of just being a witness to some key moments uh, in a small period of all of these characters' lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's also... One of those uh, genres, I think, when people say slice of life, I feel like a pretty common criticism is that nothing happens or there's no plot or something denigrating like that, something dismissive. Me personally, I'm actually a pretty decently big fan of 
slice of life. I mean, obviously there are going to be poorly done slice of life stories. Yeah. Just like any other genre. Yeah. But uh, in terms of personal appeal, slice of life is something that does draw me in more than yeah other genres perhaps like if you told me uh like a if you asked me to watch like i don't know a medical drama or something i'd probably be more interested in a slice of life show yeah even if i didn't know what that slice of life was about yeah like to your point about how uh there are people who poo-poo the idea of slice of life comics uh as as a genre as a whole um yeah i think me personally i i'm pretty drawn to slice of life as a genre as well uh i don't know what it is Uh, like i i i can't pinpoint what it is about the people that don't like it I, i like you just meant, I like how no. you said you can't pinpoint what's wrong with the people that don't like it. So yeah. your problem's not with the the genre; it's with the people that don't like it. Well, I mean, but it's true. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Let me let me try to put it in another way. But I I don't think saying that it's not about anything is accurate because. For me personally, I think the thing, the appeal for slice of life for me is in the observation, right? Like Mm -hmm. large portions of slice of life requires that you exercise your observational skills. And it's, it's kind of that impressionist idea of being able to sit for a long time and observe and to deconstruct what it is that you're observing, right? Now, if someone doesn't have the capacity to do that, <laughs> if you know, if they sit there and they don't get anything from watching something, you know, from observing life happen, if there's there aren't any lessons or takeaways that they can uh, get from that when they look at it and they uh deconstructed on their own uh-huh maybe that's not for everybody like i personally i think people as a whole would be better off being more reflective yeah but, uh i agree but you know it's hard to tell someone who doesn't understand that or who's unwilling to accept that that they might be better off as people if they did it <laughs> I like how you're able to explain what slice of life is to you while at the same time just slapping people that don't like it. <laughs> it, it, it that was like a very diplomatic backhanded <laughs> slap. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I wanted to be I wanted it I wanted to be able to phrase it in a way that if someone who didn't appreciate slice of life was listening to it, that they might be able to absorb and comprehend what I was telling them. And maybe just maybe they might reevaluate themselves. 
So yeah. I didn't want to outright slap them, but there was a tinge of disdain for them in my description. <laughs> I'll admit that. <laughs> yeah, I think the tinge came through, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I totally feel what you're saying, man, because when it comes to Slice of Life, the appeal for me is probably the fact that when it's done well, there is an artful and poetic quality to it. Because like you said, it it's something where you're looking at events or a story that is fairly um, common or ordinary. You know, it, it's something that could happen in an average person's life. But when it's framed as a story that we consume, we're able to take the time to step back because it's not our life. It's it's a story that we're reading. We're able to yeah. step back and, like you said, reflect or contemplate what is actually going on, you know? Like, even even if it's yeah. something like American Splendor and Harvey Pekar writing a story about his his day job as a filing clerk or something, you know? Like, there's still something... Yeah. He's still able to draw out the humor and the comedy yeah. inherent in everyday kind yeah. of situations and things like that, I feel like, yeah. with a lot of fiction, right? Like, a lot of fiction, the goal of a lot of fiction is to help generate empathy so that you can learn, understand, and appreciate the world better. Yeah. And when Slice of Life is done well, then you really do get an opportunity to appreciate that because yeah. it, it'll bring out those kind of qualities um, that help you as the reader I guess number one, you can you can learn about a different characters or a different someone who's just a different person than who you are, and then secondly, yeah. the situations that they're in. Even if it's something that you may never find yourself in, it gives you an idea or a chance to imagine right. what it might be like if you were to experience something like that and how might you react. Yeah. Or well, thirdly, it could even just be something where the story itself is just crafted in an artful manner that yeah. it gives you a chance to think about just the beauty of creativity, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, I was going to add one other thing. Uh, not not quite a counterpoint to what you were saying uh, in, in your second point, but I, I do think that the thing about Slice of Life that I would want to add is that I don't necessarily think it's necessarily about experiences that are foreign to to us mm -hmm. if anything i think a lot of the experiences that they describe tend to be mundane and they tend to be pretty normal and relatable yeah and it's it's our ability to see in in how they react and how they express themselves it it's in observing that that it allows us to reflect on ourselves on how we would behave under those situations and circumstances you know yeah yeah um, absolutely yeah so so like i do think there's definitely an aspect of it where it's it could be stories that are different from whatever your day-to-day -day life is but it could also be something also. that's very similar. Exactly, exactly, exactly.
Yeah. And and that's what makes this uh, genre of storytelling so, I guess, uh, something that can resonate with so many people because yeah. if you even have just the slightest amount of imagination, then yeah. you know, you should be able to understand and appreciate what's happening. Now, of course, in Bad Slice of Life, you'll see stories where they, they'll tell a story about something mundane, but it just won't be interesting or... Uh, you know, it'll it won't really have much of a point. Like, you know, th- I guess there is kind of a fine line, but yeah. it's it's the same line that exists with any type of genre. You know, because there's there's a uh, you know good science fiction stories and bad science fiction stories. There's good Absolutely. crime stories. There's bad crime stories, and yeah. there are, there are always gonna be like a few key elements here and there that can really affect the quality of a story. But the thing with Box Office Poison, to get back to the book we're discussing, is that the slice-of-life element here is so inherent to the concept of the book, it becomes a sprawling, almost like a mini-epic, because there are so many characters, and every character is living a life uh, that, you know, it's, it's not, I would say, it's not a life that I personally uh, experience like I never really did the things that uh, these characters were doing when I was in my 20s yeah but I'm pretty sure I, I know people that did do those things you know yeah yeah like it, like, it is realistic in the sense yeah. that you believe that the characters are there are people like that in in real yeah. life like I I've known horrible slobs that, that can't keep uh, their place clean, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There's people that are crazy messy and, and don't really care about keeping their apartment clean. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've known people that really hate, hate, hate their mundane job. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. It, it's all and pretty... they just complain you know, about it. Yeah, and all they do <laughs> like, is complain, yeah. Yeah, and uh, a large portion of the story is about you know, romantic relationships and, you know, people in their 20s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard. So this, <laughs> this, I've heard this there's was... this thing that exists called romance. Exactly. <laughs> I, I heard that there are times when a man loves a woman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I may not have had a, a bunch of relationships, if any, in my 20s, but, you know... It... I, have an, I have an active imagination. Does that count? <laughs> No, it doesn't. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so ends another episode of Between the Gun. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, but no, exactly. It's these characters, they're they're just regular 20 somethings that, you know, that are bad at relationships, whether by accident or on purpose. And and it's not like we're reading a comic about uh you know firefighters on mars or something like that <laughs> it's it's totally relatable um even even for someone who who didn't date any if at all uh in their 20s right sure <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you had a joke to be made there, but 
I uh, I, I kind of held my tongue. <laughs> I, I thought you were gonna have more to say, but all I was uh, faced was with was deafening silence. <laughs> well, there was also a little bit of laughter, but the laughter was only there because my alternative was to cry and sob. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So as we talk about box office poison, I think for you listeners, if you haven't read this comic, maybe our discussion is going to be, I don't know, maybe it'll be hard to follow, but but hopefully whatever we talk about will inspire you or, or motivate you to, to check this book out because it is a great piece of work. Alex Robinson is a really talented cartoonist, and like we were saying earlier, he's won all sorts of awards yeah, uh, and and this book is absolutely worth your time. It it's long, like we said, it's 600 pages, but I didn't ever feel like it was a slog to get through. It was something that I kind of devoured over a couple of days and just really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, I I I'd say the experience was the same for me. Like, I think initially looking at it, it was kind of daunting just because it's a thick book and. There's definitely a lot of words, uh, but having having finished reading it just before this podcast, actually, um, I, like I'll admit, it was I want to say laborious, but not in a bad <laughs> way, you know. Yeah, like it, it, it did take a lot of work to to like actually read it, but I did enjoy it, the experience of reading it. So. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it definitely took me a couple hours, for sure. Yeah. And I didn't do it all in one sitting. But yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's, it's like reading an, a prose novel, you know? Like, most of the time, we don't read a prose novel in one sitting either, but we yeah. still enjoy it every time we pick it up. And yeah, yeah, I think yeah. this book kind of reminds me of that. Like, number one, because it is thick, and secondly, because, like you said, there is a, there are a lot of words. Like, there are some pages that, that have a lot of uh, word balloons filled with text. And yeah. there's even a couple of pages that just have prose printed on them because one of the characters is an aspiring writer. writer. So you yeah. get to read uh, the stories that he wants to write and submit yeah. to yeah. magazines and stuff. Yeah. So there, there is, it's, it's not for people that don't like to read at all, but yeah. if you, I assume that if, if you like good stories, you don't mind reading so you can handle some word balloons here and there yeah and alex robinson his storytelling as a cartoonist is even though this is one of his earlier works i still think it he does a great job just moving the story like there's so much flow to the art that when you're when you're reading scenes they just move by so quickly because you just want to keep on reading the dialogue and and the pictures that accompany them, you know, like every panel is just so easy to read. Uh, there's, there's never anything confusing every once in a while. He'll, he'll do something that plays with, uh, that just, you know, you can tell he's just having fun. Like I remember yeah. seeing a, a spread where the characters are at the skate skating park in the ice skating park in the winter and there's all these different uh, little characters in the background, and he even drew in Where's Waldo in one of the corners. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like little things like that that just kind of make things lighthearted and fun. And 
overall, man, it's just a breeze to read, even though it takes a long time to read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I remember that uh, ice skating scene, too. Like, well, actually, I don't remember if there were multiple ice skating scenes. Uh, so I think we're talking about the same one. But... Yeah, there was just that one big ice skating scene. Yeah. The What I was going to say about that was in that scene, he, uh, one of the characters, Sherman at one point starts dancing with uh his friend's cousin and i thought the way that they drew that it it was pretty majestic if like yeah if i i don't know if there's any other way to describe it but you know just the way that he like captures the elegance of their motion in that one moment or in that like page if not a couple of pages it's uh it's just great cartooning. It's, like you yeah, said, the elegance of their motion. It, it's it's, it's kind of like watching animation or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, he captures just how, like, yeah, how soft and how elegant they move. But totally. <clears throat> Were there any characters that stood out to you? Or did you have any particular favorites? Um, I have to go back because I can't remember all their names just because there are so many of them. Uh, I would say, I will admit that I, I did like Stefan Goodell. He's like this older hippie guy that is in a relationship with, uh, Jane, with Jane and, he seemed like a cool dude. I, I like. There's no real other way to describe it. Um, I think his story was overall not one of the more interesting ones, but I think him as a character was someone that I. How do I put this? I Can guess you relate relate to him. I, I don't. I wouldn't say that it was a matter of relating to him. I, I'd say that in this series where there are just a lot of abrasive personalities and, and I wouldn't say that they were all bad uh but he he seemed like he was generally a calming presence whenever he showed up you know yeah he was or chill. A light he presence. seemed he seemed like the kind of guy that you could actually be friends with yeah exactly you know so uh, as the character, I liked him. I or I, well, I don't. I wouldn't say I cared about him more than the others because I, I, I didn't ever feel like his plot was one that put him at any risk or anything like that. I never felt like his story was one in which he had anything to lose. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think maybe it's because. He was the oldest, or one of the oldest of the young characters, at least. Yeah. Like there, there's that Irving Flavor is the oldest character, but I think other than the really old guy, Stephen was the oldest Second. of the people yeah. in their twenties. You know, he might have. Yeah. Um, if everybody else was in their early twenties, he was in his later twenties. Yeah. And maybe that gave him an aura of maturity. So it didn't. You're right. It it didn't feel like he was ever. At a, uh, yeah, he didn't have to risk very much or anything like that, but <clears throat> he was always just 
kind of this calming yeah. or stable presence. Like his his life felt like it was already more in order than just about yeah. everybody else's. Well, okay, so basically his plot in in their friend group was he was going out with he was in a long term relationship with uh one of the other characters Jane. by the name of Jane. And it felt like the moments in their story that really jumped out, at least for me, was uh, there was this one section where they go home for the holidays to to meet uh, her parents. And, well, not meet her parents. They've met her parents before. But, you know, to visit with her parents, Jane's parents, and... Yeah, um, Christmas time. Yeah, and at this point, it's established that Jane, at least in terms of relationships, is, I guess she's kind of the rebel because everyone else has taken a more traditional track and they've settled down and they've gotten married. And uh, we learn that J- uh, Stephen and Jane were... I guess they're a pretty unconventional couple, uh, at least relative to the rest of the family, and not 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 necessarily because uh, they didn't want to get married either. Like Stephen, I think it's revealed that wanted to get married at one point, but she Jane turns him down, and they end up just being in this long-term relationship with each other. And so, in the story, when they go home for the holidays. Um, I guess they sort of stick out like a green thumb, uh, because, uh, here you have this entire family life, uh, this picture of normalcy going on. And for a brief instance, uh, Stephen is pulled into that. So at one point, uh, Jane's dad he asks Stephen to come out to the garage to help help him with something. And it turns out what's, what he needs help with is uh, he wants Stephen to be Santa Claus this Christmas because he's getting too old to do it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I just thought that was <clears throat> a pretty, like, moving moment because prior to that moment, you even see him and Jane on the plane talking about you know, kids and how if he had kids, he wouldn't want to lie to them. The idea of lying to them uh, through Santa Claus is something that he finds unsavory. (laughs) Now, like, he's caught up in this thing where he understands the value of tradition and he understands the value of uh, what he's doing. And, And at one point, there's this little girl who's already aged out of the idea of Santa Claus and... You know, he Stephen comes in as Santa Claus, and he sees her unmoved by by his presence, while all the other little kids are all about Santa Claus. And there's a part of him that that aches at the thought of it. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's a good moment. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think when I read that, it registered with me, but it wasn't until you just brought it up right now that it resonates. You know. Yeah, like what you pointed out that that definitely does um, highlight that moment in his story now for me yeah. in a way that I didn't really think about when I was reading it. Yeah, I, 
so like I mentioned earlier, like Stephen Stephen's story or or storyline throughout the the series, um, it there aren't a lot of like peaks or lows to it because we're just watching him be in a relationship with Jane throughout the series. There's not like a lot of drama, but that moment was a high point for it in their in their story, you know? Yeah, totally. Actually, yeah. uh, since you brought it up, I'm curious now, man, <clears throat> but would you tell kids that there is no Santa Claus? Um, whew. I'll tell other people's kids. <laughs> I like that. That's great, man. <laughs> I uh, I have no problem ruining Christmas for other people. <laughs> um, the other one char- time, one oh. time when I uh, used to work at an elementary school, yeah, there was this six-year-old girl uh, that was telling me that she uh, she had lost a tooth, right, and. She put it under her her pillow that night, and she got fifty cents in the morning. And she showed me the money that she got, and she showed me, um, you know, that she had lost a tooth. And I was like, oh, that's cool. The tooth fairy came by and and gave you some money. And then she made a face at me, like she rolls her eyes at me, and she was like, everybody knows the tooth fairy's not real. My parents gave me this money. <laughs> and then I looked at her. I I uh, kneeled down, so we were at at eye level, and I was like. Oh yeah. What about Santa? Is he real? <laughs> and then her jaw just kind of slowly dropped, and you could see that her mind was churning, and there was surprise in her eyes. And then she thought about it for a few moments, and she said, "I don't know." And then she quickly turned around and walked away from me. <laughs> <laughs> She didn't like being deconstructed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. I think that's the closest I've ever gotten to telling a little kid that Santa isn't real. <laughs> but I felt like she day, brought that upon herself. <laughs> at the end of the day, you didn't have the heart. <laughs> I, I didn't explicitly tell her that Santa wasn't real. But yeah. because she already questioned the existence of the Tooth Fairy, I thought it was fair game to question Santa. <laughs> uh, that's... uh. Yeah, she's going to be in therapy for a while. That's great. <laughs> That's great. I'm about that. Yeah, because it's not your kid. Exactly. I don't have to pay the bills. <laughs> um, yeah, and in terms of uh, other characters that I did like, uh, you might find this a little hard to believe, or, but... I I found that I actually did like Dorothy Lestrade, you know? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. There's, I think there's something about, there's clearly something about her that's abrasive on the surface, but I think as the story goes on and as I observed her more, there was something about her that I found pretty pitiable. Hmm. So you you liked her because you felt sorry for her? Uh, well, I guess thinking about it now, maybe I didn't like her, but you were interested in her I, as I a character in the story. Her. Yeah, 
Yeah, I was interested in her as a character in the story, and I I think I was rooting for her to to get some sort of a happy ending, you know, or whatever uh, their equivalent of a happy ending is in in this mm-hmm. in this world of theirs. So yeah, uh, yeah, I could see that. It, it's one of those. She's one of those characters that has a lot of flaws but for all her flaws she's definitely fun to read about like yeah. i don't know if i could she's really get along well <laughs> with somebody like that yeah uh just because she's so messy she's an alcoholic yeah and yeah it, she just seems like a really hard person to get along with yeah but as long as I don't have to be her friend and I could just read about her life. Yeah. yeah, totally, man. I'm all I'm all about that action. Well, I think the thing about her is right from the get-go, right from the beginning, everyone seems to be uh not her characters as a don't character. Like her. Exactly. The other characters don't like her and who's her boyfriend, Sherman? Yeah. He he's the only one who seems to like her and he seems to like her for pretty superficial reasons, at least at first. And, yeah. But the way that I see it, at least, you know, messiness aside uh, and, like, whatever her other flaws may be, like, he seems to be worse for her than she is for him. Uh, I mean, that you, might be debatable. What do you mean by that? Because he's... Like, right at the beginning of the story, when you learn about Sherman's uh, romantic history, he's just a dude who seems like he's got a history of... I guess he's kind of selfish in his relationships, you know? Yeah, he's definitely a selfish character. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, although all the other characters are are knocking uh, Dorothy for you know whatever her flaws might be uh you know her just the chaotic nature of her personality like i i do think that his selfishness is ultimately worse than any of those things that you know you Hmm. might not like about her yeah yeah i guess so i mean sherman was a character in the book where his flaws made him somebody where he he was another character. If I knew somebody like that in real life, I don't think I would get along with him or even yeah. want to be his friend. Yeah. But as a character in the story, he was definitely fascinating, very yeah. interesting uh, plot. I also think we spend the most amount of time, I want to say, on their story. Yeah, they're that's like what it feels of, like. Yeah. If they're not the 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 A story, or if they're not like the characters that you spend the most time with, they're at least the second. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of space devoted to them. Yeah. But it it is interesting that you mentioned how you said he was was it he's worse for her than she is for him? I think so. Yeah. So you mean like she brings out 
the worst aspects of his character. And well, I would really say make her worse, or like, what do you? I want to unpack that. That I would say that his selfishness does more damage to her in the long run mm. than it does for him. Yeah. Than 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 any of her like behaviors do to him. Okay. So yeah. So so okay. So you you said that. The, the things that we learn about Dorothy at the beginning, at least through the other characters, is she's messy and she's manipulative and she uh, supposedly – like they, they point to things like she borrows money that she doesn't return. Things yeah. like that, right? That's pretty annoying. You're talking about like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Right. But – well, okay. Maybe this is me – uh, equivocating on her behalf or whatever, but they only mention it that one time, and they only show that one scene where he borrows some money, uh, where she borrows like a hundred bucks from uh, Sherman at the beginning, and we don't ever see that again, right? So but she she also owed hundreds of dollars to her old roommates, uh, Stephen and Jane. That's true, but what I'm saying is. Even okay, even if that's the the case, I mean she she did say that she was paying she was working to pay them off. So what I was gonna say was throughout the rest of the series, I don't really feel like we see that come up again, right? Or yeah. maybe if if it did come up, like it didn't feel like it was a big part of her personality in spite of what they had said. But so. Let me ask so you was, this. Did she yeah. ever pay back the money to Jane and Steven? I don't know. Yeah. I feel like, like I, I don't think she did. Yeah. So it's it's basically she just stole a bunch of their money, you know? Like she lied about paying them back. Yeah. Well, I, that's the thing. Like I, I, can, I can put that up in the air because for all I know – they didn't explicitly say that she didn't pay them back. <laughs> Dude, you should be a lawyer, man. I, I, it's it's true, though. I mean, like, <laughs> all I'm saying is, as far as her story goes, after the mention of the money issue that first time, they, they established that her character flaw is that she uses people for their money until... Uh, you know, they're all used up and she leaves. But what do we well, see? I don't even know if that's what they were saying about her. I got, like, for, the way I interpreted it was she was so thoughtless or maybe unwise with her finances that she would borrow money from people and not pay them back. And it, it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be something where she's maliciously setting setting out to rip people off or steal their money but it it could be like people it could be like the people that we've met in real life where they ask to borrow some money uh because because of whatever reason and then they just never end up paying you back and every time you hit them up they're just like oh i'll get it to you soon you know i'll get it to you next time yeah and when you're talking to when you're when you're living in like an apartment and someone's doing that for their rent money that's a pretty big concern you know like that's a 
that's a pretty big uh, red flag on their character. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, so I, f- I feel like there was a scene that I was reading where Jane was talking about uh, uh, Dorothy, and she essentially says something to the effect of, you know, she's just going to use him up for, you know, the money until he leaves. That that was the impression that I got. Well, that That's because Jane hates Dorothy. Yeah, but again, that's that's the thing, though. Like, from the context that we get from everybody else, it sets up that this is what Dorothy is like, you know? Well, that that's the context. That, that tells you that the character Jane has a grudge against her. Yeah. But when you look at, like, Stephen, who is also her roommate, he doesn't feel the same amount of vitriol towards her. He doesn't. So he I, doesn't. I feel like as as the reader, you you understand that Dorothy is like a certain way, but yeah. Jane feels extremely strong about her to the point yeah. where it's personal. She she absolutely cannot stand Dorothy. Yeah. Whereas just looking at it from an outside observer's perspective, I'd probably say Dorothy isn't somebody that I would trust with my money or I wouldn't want to let her borrow my money. Yeah. But... but I also don't think I would be somebody who is so vengeful against her that I would carry this vendetta all the yeah. time, you know? Yeah. Like Jane. Well, okay. I mean, okay, so the the that that makes sense. Um like I I do think I mean, she's clearly okay, so Dorothy's character is clearly one where it's obvious that she's a little irresponsible, a little messy, and yeah, you know, I'll give her that, but maybe it's because I can relate to that. Like, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm pretty good about uh, money stuff, so I, I don't have that chip on my shoulder, but my point being to your earlier question... So if the worst thing about her is she's a little bad with money and and the degree to which she's bad at money is debatable at this point, uh, I think. Uh, I, I think that if we take what my presumption was initially, which was that they the the way that they set up the story is that she, she's just this manipulative person who's going to use Sherman up and then leave and that's kind of the expectation that we have of her by the end of the story well i think that's the expectation that the other characters have of her it's not necessarily the expectation that the readers have i mean i was the reader and that was the expectation that i had so uh my point okay. being, yeah, I mean, point, I, I guess that's just one of those things where it's up to interpretation of it. I I didn't personally read it that way, right? But I'm just saying that by the end of it, like, she clearly stuck it out with Sherman, right? Yeah. So she didn't leave, and whereas I I can't really think of anything that she did to Sherman 
that was anywhere near as bad as any of the things that he was doing to her. Like, okay, like, when I think about, like, some of her quote-unquote low points, it was stuff like showing up late, you know, maybe not valuing his time or, or things like that. But, you know, Sherman ends up, he's constantly flirting with these other girls and uh he ends up cheating on her he ends up cheating on her and there are these moments of vulnerability that she has where she clearly like for someone who has such a strong and cold facade in these moments where she is vulnerable about her need of him like that's genuine or it feels genuine to me at least you know Mm mm-hmm so I think looking at their the dynamic of their relationship, people expecting her to be worse for him, at the end of the day, I, I, I don't see it. Like, I just feel like, one, Sh- Sherman's kind of a ruinous bastard. He's trash. <laughs> He's trash. And he, uh, he also, uh, and one of the other things he was constantly doing was just, being a petty, jealous jerk about her being able to get her magazines, magazine articles published while he struggled to get his stuff published. Yeah. And he'd yeah. have this inferiority complex and just fume about it. Totally. And be passive aggressive. Yeah. And when we get to the end of the series, like it clearly corrodes their, uh, you know, relationship with each other. Yeah. Yeah. But what about? What about her, uh, maybe, I don't know if she's exactly like the textbook definition of an alcoholic, but I think it's fair to say she clearly had an alcohol problem. And the the biggest, uh, the biggest incident that happened was her alcohol abuse ended up leading to her dog's death. Yeah. Uh... That, that's not too good. That's not. I mean, I guess until you mentioned it, and this might reflect more on me than, uh, but I, I, the way that I was looking when when I was reading it, I, I guess I didn't read her as having being a textbook alcoholic. Like she definitely drank a lot. And uh, and it did lead to the death of her. Well, I guess her negligence led to the death of her dog. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. You don't think it was her negligence that led to her dog's death? Uh, like, how did the dog actually die? What did it drink her alcohol? Yeah. That was, was the idea, so messy. right? Huh? That was the idea, right? Was that Yeah, alcohol yeah. poisoning. I mean, she yeah. she had I guess that night she uh got so drunk th- that she uh stumbled home and like knocked over some some bottles or something and, yeah. and then wasn't really aware and then her dog ended up getting alcohol poisoning after her dog lapped some up. I guess I just looked at it as 
a tragic thing that happened to them. I didn't necessarily assign blame when I was looking at that. It was just a stupid thing that happened. Oh, yeah. See, I'm always ready to blame people for things like that, man. (laughs) I think that says a lot about who I am because to me, it's like if you're going to be negligent, that and your your negligence leads to a dog's your dog's death then you got a problem there you know because she was her house was so her apartment was so messy there was so much crap and junk on the floor mm. and the fact that she stumbled home late uh with you know after a long night of drinking and didn't really pay attention to where her dog was or anything like that and then wakes up in the morning just to, to, or I guess wakes up in the middle of the night to find her dog, uh, you know, lying and convulsing or whatever. Yeah. Like to me that that's not really a normal thing, you know, like I feel like stuff like that would happen to someone who has a problem. Uh, yeah, I get what you're saying. I guess. Yeah. I, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those things where she had just been a little bit neater, cleaned up after herself. Maybe maybe that wouldn't have happened. Or maybe if if she had just been a little bit more responsible and alert when she yeah. got home, maybe that could have been prevented. So Yeah. It's it's, you know, super unfortunate, but yeah. In terms of the story, I, I felt like that really it's it was one of those things where you feel sorry for her because yeah. her dog dies in a sad way, but you also kind of, or at least I felt kind of mad at her for letting it happen like that too, you know? Right, right. Because I felt like it was her fault. Yeah. I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's a good thing, but I still don't think in terms of... um she didn't cheat on her man. At least yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think she was nearly as manipulative as you know anybody thought she was. Not only least. that, but but uh, Sherman, one of his buddies, was that one douchebag. I forgot his name. Uh, He's sort that... of the guy that looks. I don't know why, but looking at him, he he kind of reminded me of like a warped mirror version of Sherman. <laughs> Yeah, right? Like like the worst case scenario of yeah. what Sherman could be if he just gave in to his worst impulses. Because was, was the guy's name James? I forgot if it was James. I, I know who you're talking about. I forgot his name. But he was basically just a man whore. Yeah, the dude was just a horn dog who was hitting on everybody. Like he had no, he got caught he had having no an affair whatsoever. with a married woman. He had no shame. Like yeah. that, that's some straight douchebaggy stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah, and I think in one scene, I don't know, at least the way that I I interpreted it, but I think he he was intentionally trying to drug a girl's drink. Yeah. But, but Ed ended up drinking it. I think his name is Ed, right? Yeah. But yeah. Ed ends up drinking it instead. Like, yeah. that's pretty awful. I mean, I already didn't like that guy to begin with. And the yeah, fact that drug. he's going to give people roofies that that's yeah. just don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and the fact that Sherman continues to be his friend, even though he knows James is like that. Yeah. I feel like that says a lot about Sherman, man. 
Like, yeah. granted, he does have. There is a scene where Sherman tries to talk to him when he sees James on a date with their former coworker, who happens to be a married woman, but her husband is serving in the military, so he's away. Yeah. And and Sherman has a talk with him, but he doesn't actually do anything about it. You know, like. Yeah. It's it's like at that point, if you know somebody's like that, why would you just continue to tolerate it and and yeah, um, you know, enable them and be their friend and stuff, you know, yeah. like. And that dude's maybe maybe it's just because either. of me and, and like I personally, if I if I do have any friends that are like that, I'm not aware of that behavior and I yeah. maybe I'm just you know completely naive to it, but I want to believe that if I did have a friend that was like that. If I couldn't get them to stop, I probably wouldn't be their friend anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to say, the dude's response when he got called out. Yeah. Like, that should be... That was a even greater indicator of how much of a bag of dicks he was. Yeah. But... That's, like, that's for him to go... You kind of wish he was real just so you could punch him. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are like him. Yeah, that's that's true. That, that like he, character is definitely based on a bunch of real people. <laughs> yeah. So when he gets caught, you know, going on a date with this married woman and Sherman calls him out, his response is, why are you putting all this on me? She's a, she's a grown woman and she bears responsibility in this too. And like to say that, it's like, come on, man, that's maybe she does bear responsibility for this, but. That doesn't absolve you of your role in this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're trash too. Like, <laughs> so what? You expect me to go over there and yell at her too? Like, maybe that's true, but right now I'm yelling at you. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just take it. Seriously, man. Seriously. Yeah. What about you? Uh, what were the characters that? Uh, I guess left an impact on you or impression. I think the characters and also the the storyline that captivated me the most was probably the uh, the characters of Ed and Irving, Irving Flavor. Uh-huh. Yeah. So so Ed is a guy in his early twenties who's who was Sherman's. I, I guess he was his best pal, uh, but. Once Sherman starts dating Dorothy, he kind of sees less and less of him. But Ed is a guy who is an aspiring comics creator. And in the world of Box Office Poison, the big superhero comic book publisher is this company called Zoom Comics. And they publish this character called the Night Stalker. The Night Stalker was a character in the story who was created by Irving Flavor back in the, I don't know, the golden age of comics, you know, way back in the day. And it's persisted to this, to the present time, which is the nineties, I guess the mid or late nineties. They've been, there've been night stalker movies and all sorts of products. So zoom's really raking in the cash. It's kind of interesting reading this story now because of the MCU and how popular the Marvel movies are. Yeah. Cause back in the nineties, when box office poison was originally published, there weren't really too many superhero com- uh, movies, you know, there Batman weren't really... was probably yeah. the biggest one that you could think of. Batman yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, 
the idea of, of a comic book company just raking in the dough because of their movie adaptations. I don't know, maybe like 25 years ago, that was kind of a far-fetched I- idea, but now it's like more relevant than ever. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. And, I mean, and, and it's that's not even to say that Marvel is raking in the dough. I mean, Disney bought Marvel, so it's Disney that's raking in the dough. But, you know, same idea, basically. Yeah. But I, I like the character of Ed. I think I resonated, he resonated with me just because he was a guy who was really into comics Star Wars didn't have a girlfriend or anything like that and was just but you know he felt lonely I don't know if he really felt depressed or anything but he definitely wanted to find somebody he wanted to meet women and and he wanted to do something with his creative uh ideas and make comics and and just you know make something of his life yeah and his story is him going to Zoom and trying to apply for a job by sending in some samples. And the editor there isn't too impressed, but tells him to go look up this old artist guy named Irving Flavor because he could use an assistant. So yeah. Ed meets him, and it turns out Irving Flavor is the guy who created the Night Stalker way back in the day. Mm. But in a, in a story that's all too reminiscent of real life, yeah. he didn't own the character that he created and yeah, the contract yeah. that he signed was, you know, it was just a work for hire gig. So Zoom is the one that gets to control the character, rake in all the money from all the, all the products and licensing deals and the movies and stuff. While Irving Flavor, even though he's this legend who created the most popular superhero of all time, mm. he's just living in squalor. You know, like he has yeah. a tiny little rat hole of an apartment. Like there's there's literally like rats on the ground. When Ed goes to the apartment for the first time, you see a rat on the ground. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. It's like man. It's pretty gross. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the thing that's that sucks is that 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 really is realistic, man. Yeah, it's um some of the older creators uh of of older comics characters. The, the industry did not treat them well, you know, uh, after after they got their value from them, uh, a bunch of them ended up, well, not a bunch, uh, but I know quite a few of them ended up, like, being in debt later in life, not being yeah. able to punt, pay medical bills, like, uh, what's his name, who's the guy that created Howard the Duck? Steve Gerber. Yeah, like, didn't he have a bunch of medical bills towards the end of his life? Uh, like, maybe. I, that sounds right, but I, I'm not exactly sure. I don't really... I The main th- the thing I remember about Steve Gerber is is that he, he did have a lot of... He tried to take Marvel to court, you know? Like, he tried to win back Howard the Duck, and he, he yeah. fought Marvel, and he did a lot for creators' rights, so... He he didn't necessarily make a bunch of money from yeah. the characters he created for Marvel, but I'm not sure if he died in poverty or anything. But yeah, okay. it, it was it was pretty sad because I I know that he died fairly young and he had some health problems and yeah. I don't know if if uh, if he had been treated better maybe that could have been uh, prevented. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just, 
feels like it didn't end well for him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's like that with a lot of creators, man. I mean, it is. You you were talking, you were telling me about watching that uh, documentary the other day about Bill Finger. Yeah. Dude, Bill Finger created Batman, and and that guy died. He died in poverty, didn't he? Yeah, he basically. died. He basically died in a. He died in like a dingy, like studio apartment, and. Um, I think initially they had thought that he was in this thing called a pauper's grave. So when he died, they found him, and no one was there to pick him up because they couldn't find any next of kin, and he wasn't married. And mm-hmm. they they basically just they initially were just gonna put him in this thing called a pauper's grave, which is just like a plot of land with no headstone, just a, a number indicator that they just throw you in. It's yeah, it, it like it's the symbolism is like really messed up because it's this dude who created all of the most well-known elements of batman everything that almost Mm -hmm. all of the things that you know about the batman he created and he was denied um recognition throughout his entire life Mm -hmm. and even in death for him to be put in this unmarked grave the idea of him being put in this unmarked grave like like that just tops it off, you know. Yeah, it's horrible, man. Yeah, horrible. Yeah. I was listening to a couple of weeks ago. I was listening to an episode of Off Panel, the podcast uh, from Sketched, uh, David Harper. Yeah. And he was interviewing Abraham Reisman or Reisman. Sorry, I forget what it, how to pronounce his last name, but the guy who wrote that auto or not auto. Uh, he wrote the biography. Uh, the new biography of Stan Lee that just came out uh, fairly uh-huh. recently. Uh, I think it's called uh, Excelsior or something like that. Yeah. But uh, during that interview uh, with, the, with the biographer, I learned that in his research, he, he talked to Larry Lieber, who is Stan Lee's younger brother, so Larry Lieber is still alive. He's like 89 years old right now, uh, and and he he did a lot of stuff too. Like he he uh, co-created uh, a bunch of the key characters uh, of Marvel. Um, he I want to say he co-created Ant Man. Oh. And uh, Thor, I believe. But but he he also did a lot of early work on those characters. Iron Man also, I think. Right. So he 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 had such an instrumental hand in in helping Marvel uh, create and establish their most famous and long lasting characters. But at you know at this point in his life, he's 89 years old. He's he's just living in this tiny little rat hole of an apartment in new york and he's just fortunate to live there because i guess it's like rent controlled or something where he's he he doesn't have to pay you know exorbitant rates 
Yeah, Vance. but it's yeah. it's like a really small place according to the biographer who who talked to him. So just hearing stuff like that, man, it it kind of like it just kind of makes me mad to think that these guys that that created all these characters that are beloved all over the world and and uh, have lasted so long and made Marvel and Disney so much money. It's like, man, Disney made so much money from every single one of their movies. Like they made what, like t- those twenty three movies. Yeah. And they can't even spare like a couple hundred thousand for these guys that created those characters. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. What the heck, man. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm sure it's nice to get a little thank you acknowledgement in the credits, but I'm pretty sure it'd be nicer to have, like, a few thousand bucks. Yeah, not starving would be nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Dude, the guy's already pushing 90. Can't you give him something? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or even, you know, Jack Kirby and... and the whole ordeal with him and and his uh, his kids when those Avengers when the Avengers movie was coming out like there was just so much his there's just so much real life history about these comic book companies not giving a crap about the people that created the characters you know and and that's what sucks and you really see that play out in box office poison in, in the story with with uh, Irving and Ed because so much of their story together is not only them kind of figuring out how to work with each other, but it's also Ed uh, encouraging Irving to kind of fight for his rights too. Yeah. It starts when they get set up with an interview with this uh, magazine or a fanzine or something called, I think, Comics World in, in the story. It's not... A real magazine but they're clearly based on uh the comics journal because they're you know they're championing creators rights and independent comics and things like that right and you know they want to stick it to the man they want to stick to zoom comics yeah so to see that story played out in this fictional landscape it it was it's like it was way too reminiscent of real life, man. Yeah. And yeah. even the way that it ended, the the way that whole story played out. Yeah, Irving Flavor was kind of nearing, you know, nearing the end of his life cuz he was pretty old by this point in the story. Yeah. And instead of like really fighting all the way, he kind of just He was began a tired a old man. <laughs> yeah, he was kind of a tired old man, you know, yeah. and and it maybe that I think that is a realistic and uh, you know logical yeah. uh, conclusion, yeah. but th- there was still something where I think Ed kind of expressed it in the story too, where he kind of wished that well not kind of he explicitly wished that Irving had kept on fighting, you know, and I yeah that, that that's <laughs> that's probably the same thing that I felt when I was reading it too. It's like yeah. Dude, he he settled for forty eight thousand dollars when their movie is making like hundreds and hundreds of millions, and there are yeah. you know there's been like six movies, and they're probably like forty eight thousand is nothing. Yeah, they they were saying that forty eight thousand was probably how much they spent to cater the last movie. Yeah, exactly. You know, but but 
Yeah, I mean, you said it yourself. There's this one scene where where um, Irving even acknowledges that they've got all these lawyers, like, and I got nothing. Who am I going to hire to lawyer up for me? And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I get that. Like, there's this uh, desire to want to see justice be done, and it's hard when the person that you want to see justice for doesn't doesn't even want to fight for it to the bitter end, right? Yeah. 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 It's it's comics, man. Comics will break your heart. Yeah, it's yeah, it, it, it's pretty depressing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, man, it's just too close to home, man. Too too realistic. That that part was too realistic. Yeah. Yeah, it really is weird that I watched that. So the name of the documentary was uh, Batman and Bill, and it's the story of Bill Finger. And reading this comic, it really was like it, it felt like a, a a moment in the Matrix or something because I was like, oh shoot. <laughs> This this really is reminiscent of the documentary that I just watched, and like, there are just so many uh, plot elements that just synced up with the true story of Bill Finger, who uh, again he created all of the details and a lot of the story elements of Batman that we recognize as Batman today, but because Bob Kane was a bastard he decided to take credit for himself mm-hmm. uh and and he used legal me- legal means to essentially screw bill finger out of uh recognition and uh, batman and bill is the documentary of one guy's mission to get uh recognition for bill finger yeah that's why uh so many comics, I think it was up until the last couple of years, but for, for, you know, decades and decades, anytime you'd open up a Batman comic or watch a Batman movie, it would always say Batman created by Bob Kane. Yeah. And that, that's just messed up, man. Yeah. And like, Bob Kane was a hack. Yeah. To add insult to injury in the, uh, documentary there's this scene where where they uh, interview Bob Kane in the later years of his life and and like you have to keep in mind so you know Bob Kane at this point had monopolized the idea of Batman and when Batman 1989 when that movie came out and it like you know did gangbusters he was making money off the fact that his name was on on Batman. So so he was not suffering in obscurity like a lot of these creators because he could go out there and even if he wasn't explicitly making money on Batman, just by saying that he was the guy that created Batman and, you know, selling his other stuff that he did, he was mm-hmm. uh he was making money off off that more than enough money to like live well on. And Yeah. And they did this interview with him 
where he was basically talking about Bill Finger. And at, at this point, Bill Finger had died fairly recently. But Bob Kane was saying, uh, I wish I could go back to 20 years earlier and give Bill Finger the credit that he deserves. But the messed up thing was, even up until the end of his life, he still wasn't, like, when he could have done something to help Bill Finger, he did nothing. Yeah. You know? He 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 didn't actually mean what he said. He was just trying to sound good for whoever he was talking to, yeah. you know? He was just but, sounding, trying to sound like a gracious bastard. Yeah. But actions speak louder than words, man. And yeah. just because you say that you wish you could have done something for somebody, I mean, you know what would have been better? If you had actually Doing done something, something for him. <laughs> for real. Yeah. Like, even at that point, even, even after Bill Finger had died, why didn't Bob Kane go back and tell DC, exactly. hey, we need to put Bill Finger's name in the credits. It can't just be my name. You know, like, if he really meant what he said, he could yeah. have done something like that, but he never did. Yeah, he never did. So, Bob Kane, you're a toe rag. Total scumbag in comics. Yeah. If, if we ever do a, an episode where we do a... Or if we ever do a series of episodes where we do the top 25 scumbags in comics, <laughs> he'd be up there. <laughs> He's a pretty big one. He's a huge one. Like, it's sad. Like, all those years that I grew up reading Batman comics, Bob Kane was was definitely a name that, like, sh- that showed up really often and, like, that I automatically associated with Batman, even though I wasn't reading a whole bunch of Batman comics, you know? Yeah, because his name was always in the credits, man. Yeah, yeah. Even even if you watched a cartoon or a movie or something, or a TV show, it would always say Batman created by Bob Kane. Yeah. And that that is a blatant lie. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, uh, Box Office Poison does capture that story uh, pretty well, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, if you have any interest in... I, I get it, like... A lot of these, a lot of the litigious stuff that happens uh, about creators' rights behind closed doors might not necessarily be, on the face of it, the most interesting or compelling stories. But in Box Office Poison, I, I do think it was pretty interesting to see how that story plays out. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That was that was. For me, I think it was probably the most compelling story. I mean, all, all of the stories grabbed my attention because I just devoured this book. But I think that story in particular captured my attention. And the character of Ed, just him being this guy who was like, he wasn't, as compared to the other characters, I didn't really feel like he was a jerk or anything, you know, like he wasn't. He wasn't a bad person or somebody that would piss me off just by his existence. Yeah. He actually seemed like somebody that I could get along with. Yeah. Yeah. He was probably the second like decent person in in the in the story. Um Yeah, he <sighs> Part of me wants to say that he was harmless. So <laughs> I don't know if that's if that's taken as a compliment, but uh, 
like relative to some of the other characters in the book, I, I would say uh, the harmless aspect of him is certainly more appealing than what they had to offer. Yeah, if I had to choose between the harmless dude or the horn dog, I would choose the harmless dude. Yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> for sure, for sure. In terms of some of the main themes of the story, Albert, what were the things that stood out to you? Uh, I think, so one of the obvious ones that we mentioned earlier is that it's a story about prime. A lot of the characters in the story were 20 somethings who were struggling to find themselves in life, whether it be professionally or um, personally in terms of uh, relationships or even uh, in terms of family history, you know, or, or tradition, but it just felt like it was a lot of characters that were just aimless in their direction in their twenties, especially. And it made sense that, you know, these people who just recently exited college and were on their way to, to not quite being fully full, full blown adults, but on their way to accumulating the experiences that would make them adults, then mm -hmm. it would just mean that they would just kind of, point themselves in all directions just in an attempt to find the person that they would ultimately want to be, you know? Yeah. So I, I do think that that, that search is, is one, definitely one of the themes of the story. Um, yeah. Just that struggle to find your way in life and figure out who you are. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess in a way it's, would is it would you call it a coming of age story or or? Uh, no, I don't think I would call it coming of age really, but it there are certain elements of it that kind of remind me of something like a coming of age story. I I, I guess I would say it's I wouldn't call it a coming of age story because. At the end of it, not everybody yeah, exactly. comes out, you know, more not mature and grows. more noble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So some people are still just as yeah. gross or even worse than they were at the beginning of the story. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I guess it's it's still that that journey of of trying to discover who they are. Yeah. Um. There was one other like scene. I, okay, so I'm I'm trying to look for a way to articulate it, but there was one scene in the comic between Sherman and his dad, which which stuck with me, and it was this it was this it was a pretty random moment, but Sherman is outside of his I think I forget what exactly had happened, but he was outside of I believe he was outside of his bookstore or something when he runs into his estranged father mm -hmm. and you know, they haven't seen each other in a long while and just being caught 
on the spot in that moment. He's trying to just go with the moment just to see where where it'll lead him. And yeah. he's talking with his dad, and we, as the readers, we learn that, you know, his dad left his mom uh, when when he was just a boy, and he hasn't seen him since. And we don't really know much else after that, but, you know, as they're sitting there in the diner and they're talking, um, we, we come to realize of his life, of Sherman's uh, dad's life, that... He's just a massive screw up who, after leaving uh, Sherman's mother for, you know, after abandoning the family, he starts mm-hmm. a new life with this other woman. But at the point where he comes back in contact with Sherman, it turns out he cheated on her too. Or not too, but he, he ended up cheating on her and he was going to. And he was uh, in this situation where that life was falling apart. And he tries to uh, justify his actions by saying thing by talking about it in these terms where he he tries to make it sound like he's this really liberated person and how (laughs) he's been living his whole life trying to make other people happy. But, you know. It's like, shut up, dude. You're yeah. a deadbeat and a cheat. Yeah, and You're he was a trying, louse. Yeah, he was trying to make it sound like it was this really enlightened thing where it was like, when you get as old as me, you'll see that living your entire life trying to make people happy only makes you sad, and it's not as easy or as black and white as that. And Sherman just kind of loses his crap, and he's like, you're such a self-centered ass. And, um, you know, and this, you know... For you to say, talk about this like it's some sort of life lesson or like some sort of revelation uh, that this, um, you know, living your life caring about other people or being considerate of other people is some sort of detriment to yourself. Like, yeah, you're you're totally just trash, you know, and he, he just like flips out on his dad and... and all his dad does is he he tries to take this weird moral high ground where he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. And like, how dare you talk to me like this, blah, blah, blah. And he's just completely oblivious to just how much of a selfish bastard he is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I was thinking about it as you were uh, recounting the incident, but... In a way, it's almost like Sherman is not too far from the tree, you know? Like, he's the apple yeah. from, that fell from the tree, you know? Like, father yeah, yeah, like yeah. son. No, he and might, that's... Exactly. Yeah. No, and that's... Uh, yeah, you brought me back to, to the original thread that I was thinking of, but it feels like one of the themes that this the story was going for is this idea that... It's this idea, like, so I, I've i only briefly thought about it, so I I'm, I'm don't, it's not fully formed in my head how to describe it, but it almost feels like the idea is that we feel like 
life lessons and changes are are a foregone conclusion you know like because mm -hmm. of television and movies and things that this idea that oh you know once you get closure once you learn your life lesson like you're better off for it and you're not you know and you're a different person now and you know and that's it you ride off into the sunset you're you're no longer a bastard these aren't <laughs> problems anymore right but if only it were that simple yeah but exactly but sherman's response is quite obviously that that's not how it works you have to actively try to be a better person and at that point he even re re repeats a line uh that was said to him earlier by uh that girl clarice uh you mean that girl that he cheats with yeah uh i think her name is caprice caprice right so at one point you know uh sherman's dad says to him when you get to my age you'll find that it's not so easy to judge people and sherman repeats this line that caprice says to him earlier in in the story where he, and what he essentially says is maybe i won't maybe i won't see uh maybe when i am your age i won't be so quick to judge but that still doesn't make what you're doing right yeah you know yeah and yeah and i i think for a story about people who are growing and aging and this idea that we want to believe that at the end of it all when we fast forward a couple of years in the future that everyone has a happy ending and you know whatever emotional journeys that they went on uh provided them with closure or something or whatever we think closure is and they ended up being better off for it and you know we all want to believe that they're going to be sitting in their rocking chair uh you know staring at a sunset saying it was a good journey i'm glad that it worked out that way and i'm glad that i i learned to be a better person because of it yeah when in reality <laughs> that's not always the case you know some people don't learn anything man some people don't learn anything yeah exactly so i i do think that that was one of the themes another theme in the story that kind of jumped out at me yeah yeah that's a good one yeah i think what about the other things that i saw were just kind of they might be emotional concepts that might be common to people who are uh you know in their 20s or thereabouts just things like dealing with feelings of depression or loneliness or feeling like uh, an outsider because you don't know what you're doing with your life just that kind of aimlessness that I guess a lot of fiction about slackers characters in their 20s kind of you know emphasizes that idea of aimlessness i think that's one of the recurring themes that that jumps out at me i don't know if it really has any pronouncements to make on the idea of aimlessness yeah but it does certainly feel like many of these characters uh, 
undergo experiences where they deal with aimlessness in their lives in their lives and for each of them you know it it looks different but it's still something of uh, regardless of the shape or form it takes it is still something that is a common uh, a common denominator for most if not all of the major characters yeah yeah it does feel like i can't say for sure but i want to say it feels like each of them goes through some different variation of aimlessness right yeah yeah here's another question albert but what why is box office poison the title of this comic yeah, that's an interesting question. Like, I finished reading the book, and to be quite honest, I couldn't. I don't. I couldn't for the life of me figure out why that was. I've, I feel like with a lot of other comics that we read, um, titles are important. Titles are, you know, usually that first thing that in that's the gateway into whatever it is you're going to read. And a lot mm-hmm. of the times with a lot of the books, it. It usually makes sense, right? Like, maybe this is me being generous, but I feel like with titles, if it's obviously bad, like for the most part, if it's fine to good, it's something that I find tolerable, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, like in order to be bad, you'd ha- it would have to be an incredibly bad title, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like babysitting by Bill Cosby or something Oof. like that. Yeah, <laughs> that might have more to do because of the fact of uh, that he's the author of it. <laughs> but Is with box office, no. Okay, I, I, I hope not. <laughs> but with box office poison, like it, I'm not. It it wasn't a bad title, but it was certainly something where upon finishing the book. I was looking for some sort of connection between the title and the the content, and uh, I can't for the life of me figure out what it is. I, I was I was curious as to what your thoughts on that were. Maybe you could help uh, illuminate that for me. Yeah, so I, I felt the same way, man. Like I was trying to think of why he decided to title his comics. Why he decided to title this comic "Box Office Poison," and from what I know, the in general usage, the idiom "box office poison" refers to an actor, like a movie actor, who I guess has a string of of failures. So at yeah. that point, his name is just attached with failure. So he doesn't. Yeah. Nobody really would want somebody like that to be the leading man of their. Yeah of their uh movie yeah so, so in that sense that actor becomes box office poison right he becomes somebody yeah. that they want to avoid yeah basically so, someone whose entire career is just making crap yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah not only crap but crap that doesn't sell yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like that's I feel like that's an important distinction. It is. It is. There are people that make crap that turn, you know, that 
uh, rakes in like millions and billions of dollars. And at the end of the day, as long as it makes money, they're the people that make it don't care. Yeah. But I was but, thinking maybe yeah. the only thing I could really think of, and this might be a stretch, man, because it's just my imagination working, trying to concoct a reason why box office poison is the title. But maybe it's because so many of the characters in this story are, you know, we, we've just discussed uh, a good handful of them, but so many of the characters in this story are people that I think most of us, even though we recognize bits of our friends and perhaps even ourselves in these characters, mm. I think objectively speaking chances are if we had the choice we wouldn't want to be like these characters or we wouldn't want to be friends with these characters and maybe from that perspective it's like these characters are box office poison because you don't want them in your life (laughs) yeah um yeah based on your description i feel like that's probably the most sensible uh reason like it's the most sensible explanation that i could come up with but um you know i'm curious better than anyone has ever i've got yeah yeah i mean like i said that could be a stretch man like that's just like i was trying to think of a reason why and that's all i could come up with but i wonder I wonder if anyone's ever interviewed alex robinson and just asked him straight up why he named his comic box office poison we'll have to check that out yeah yeah like if anybody listening out there knows the reason why he he named the comic box office poison hit us up because i'm really curious yeah illuminate for us (laughs) (laughs) so overall what'd you think of the book man I thought it was great. I thought it was a great character study. I thought it was a great, um, you know, journey through the lives of these people. Um, It was something where reading it, I wanted to know how their lives turned out. I wanted to know uh, how their stories ended, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I mentioned earlier that the book is dense and it's thick. And, you know, it obviously took work to read it, but it wasn't laborious um, in terms of my enjoyment of it, right? Like, it didn't feel like work when I was reading it, you know? Yeah. It wasn't wasn't like you had to force yourself and struggle and think, oh, man, only only 300 more pages. Yeah. Only 250 more pages. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my one warning is if you're the kind of person who feels like you have to read – books where you have to like the characters that might be hard for you uh i mean i'd still recommend it but you know you should go into it knowing that not everyone is um you know a noble or like or even likable person and in addition to that um yeah i i i would recommend it to people who who don't enjoy the idea of slice of life or people who um yeah people who who don't consider that entertaining 
Like, I, I, I think there's a lot here if you're willing to take that extra energy and take that effort to be observational and to be reflective. Um, there's a lot that can be gained from, from, from reading it, you know? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This, this comic has a lot. It's got drama. It's got romance and relationships. It's got comedy like I, I, maybe that's one thing that we didn't really talk about too much in this comic was the comedy. Like there's some there's some pretty funny stuff in here. Yeah. Like there's there's some scenes where uh, the apartment where Sherman and Stephen and Jane live in their their landlady is she's kind of <laughs> crazy. And yeah. She gets intense and she's she's always like policing everybody's activities and stuff. Yeah. And th- there are points where Alex Robinson goes full on cartoony with the artwork there, and it's funny, man. Like it's stuff that yeah genuinely made me smile. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I feel like we we've talked so much about the story, but I, I do want to emphasize that the artwork is excellent, man. It, it's it's I think comp- when I first read uh, Tricked, I thought the reason why I was super into Tricked was because I was at a period of, in my life when I just wanted to read more indie comics and just discover stuff that that wasn't your typical Marvel, DC, Image, Dark Horse stuff. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, I guess a lot of indie comics, you know, the arts, if you're used to Marvel and, and DC and, and those kind of books, the art in a lot of alternative comics is quite different. It's a very different style. Yeah, totally. When, when I picked up Tricked and I saw the artwork in that, there was something really accomplished about his style in Tricked. And Box Office Poison is his earlier work. And I think if you look at like the first 20 or 40 pages of Box Office Poison, it's quite different from looking at even the end of this book, let alone his next book. Yeah, so you can no, you can I, see I, the evolution of his artwork, man. Totally. And it's it's always a cool thing to see when when a, a creator begins Gross. something in his kind of his like rawest, purest form, and you see him just get better and better and improve and improve over over you know the next couple hundred pages. And yet there's still a sense of cohesion to it, you know. Like it's not like the first part is so bad that it doesn't fit with the rest of it no the his early pages are still solid but you can just tell that there's a difference because he continues to improve with every with every chapter yeah 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 i uh i'm totally behind you on that man yeah yeah so overall man i agree that box office poison is a great piece of work definitely recommend it if uh if you're someone who's looking for a comic that's not your typical mainstream Marvel image or DC or or I guess even like Dark Horse or Boom, check out some top shelf comics and check out some of the work that Alex Robinson has done. You know, maybe maybe Box Office Poison 
is daunting, but you could always check out his his other comics too. Yeah, too cool to be forgotten is substantially shorter, and I think it's um it's as good or I mean it's good, it's great. You know, they're they're both great works, but mm-hmm. uh, I would recommend that if you want something that's not as daunting to approach. Yeah. Yeah, so speaking of recommendations, man, what are some of the other books you would recommend to somebody who did read Box Office Poison and enjoyed it? Um so the recommendations that I were going to make, well, I was going to make, they're not all actually books. Uh so I was talking about Batman and Bill earlier and I would actually recommend that our viewers watch that if they're if they have any interest it's a documentary about the story of bill finger and it's yeah it's tied very heavily uh their story is is very similar to the story of uh irving flavor in in this in box office poison so there's a lot uh that a lot of parallels there um if you're interested in in you know that sort of you know David and Goliath uh, litigation mm-hmm. sort of story. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, the other show that I would recommend that I actually thought of while I was reading this is I'd recommend BoJack Horseman. It oh. is a it's a Netflix show and um, it's an animated series and I think. After after reading um, Box Office Poison, I want to say that Bojack Horseman feels like it would be it'd be like if you followed the story of some of the worst characters in in Box Box Office Poison, the characters that didn't grow up, that never learned a lesson, <laughs> and if you if you fast-forwarded to them in their 40s and you followed their lives while they were in their 40s, I feel like that's what BoJack Horseman would be. Because, essentially, BoJack Horseman is about a washed-up TV star who, you know, in his 20s had, like, all this opportunity, but he just ended up being a selfish, miserable bastard and continued to live that way up until his 40s and it's just this story of a guy who never learned the lesson of you know how being a good person actually requires you to be a good person (laughs) so so we told you know we were talking about uh, box office poison earlier and how um you know sherman was upset at his dad because, you know, his dad was talking about, you know, his journey in life and how, you know, he he was just following his heart and somehow that's noble. And in BoJack Horseman, it's sort of the same thing where he has to get to this place where he needs to tell himself, he like, he's been constantly telling himself, you know, I I just need to do what's best for me. But in reality, what he's what the lesson he should have been learning is if you want to be a good person, you should actually try to be a good person. 
Yeah. That, yeah. That sounds like common sense, but I'm sure a lot of people need common sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, and not to go on too much of a tangent, I mean, the thing that I do enjoy about BoJack Horseman is the fact that it's something that doesn't... So, it's something that deconstructs the idea of sitcoms, and the problem with sitcoms being that people have these problems, and at the end of 20 minutes, your life goes back to normal, and your problems all go away. And people who watch a lot of TV, it feels like that's how they kind of view, that's the lens that they view their world through. And mm -hmm. the thing about BoJack is it it kind of refutes that idea. And it's the idea that people really have their ups and downs. And, you know, this idea that you overcome one hurdle and all of a sudden you're this entirely different person moving forward. It's not realistic at all. Yeah. You know? So it takes a lot more work than that. It takes persistence. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the last comic that I would recommend, or the one comic that I would recommend is Life Between Panels. It's by Ethan Young. And uh, it's a comic by Dark Horse. And it's, it's pretty similar to Box Office Poison in that it's about an aimless young man who works on comic books for a living. And he's at a point in his life where he's trying to figure out the direction that he wants to go. And in the story, his comic book characters come to life and help him to sort it out. But, you know, it, it, it is about him making some tough decisions and uh, trying to decide the person that he ultimately wants to be. Yeah, that's one I've had my eye on since ever since I heard you uh, mention it. I, yeah. I want to check. I gotta check that one out at some point. I'll uh I'll bring it over sometime. You you should check it out. It's worth checking out, man. It's good. Sweet man. Yeah. What about you? What recommendations you got? Uh, well, I already mentioned Tricked because it was his book that he did after Box Office Poison. It's kind of similar in the sense that it's slice of life. It's about an ensemble cast. But the difference is that not – I don't think every character – it's been a while since I've read it, so mm. hopefully I'm not fudging the details too much. But I don't think every character was in their 20s and a slacker. It was an ensemble story that actually coalesces in a way that Box Office Poison doesn't exactly do. Because from what I remember, um, I'd say Tricked – has a more tightly plotted story structure and yeah. everybody's story does end up like colliding at a certain yeah. point. Yeah. I remember it, it that. It kind of well. reminds me of that movie from I don't know, maybe like fifteen years ago. Do you remember this movie called Crash? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It, like from what I remember about that movie, it's been a while since I've seen that too, but I just remember finding a lot of similarities between the two because they kind of came out around the same time. Yeah, but from what I remember, it was another uh, big, big ensemble cast, and at the very end, you know, something happens that brings every story uh, together or every character together in mm. an interesting way. And Tricked also takes place in the same universe as Box Office Poison, I think, because Caprice is one of the characters in Tricked, and she's a minor character here in Box Office Poison. 
Mm. She's that girl that uh, Sherman ends up kissing when he's supposed to be dating Dorothy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's also shorter than Box Office Poison. It's only like half as long, I think, mm. maybe like 300 pages. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, the hardcover version of that that I bought maybe like a year ago, maybe two oh, years nice. ago. Oh, nice. found it in hardcover. Very yeah. good, man. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to the chance that I get to read that again, man. Yeah, yeah. I want definitely. I'd say reading Box Office Poison made me want to reread Tricked. So mm. maybe I'll I'll pick it up sometime again soon. Yeah. Another recommendation for a com- uh, another comic recommendation is The Waiting Place by Sean McKeever mm-hmm. or Sean Kelly McKeever. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure uh when he decides to use like his full name and when he's just sean mckeever <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say maybe maybe when he's on a murder spree and he decides to be to to use his serial killer alias because as we all know all serial killers have three names <laughs> yeah like john wayne gacy yeah there's Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee. I guess he's not a serial killer, but he's still a killer. What's his name? Uh, oh, I guess Ted Bundy is just Ted Bundy. They never went yeah. his name. There's yeah. Don't forget about Julian Zachary Hanna. <laughs> <laughs> Where you at? You heard Zach? it here, guys. <laughs> oh, I'm just playing. I love Zach. Yeah. There were a few different artists on The Waiting Place. Mike Norton was, is the guy whose name I remember. Uh, apologies to the other artists who, whose names I forget. But The Waiting Place, the I believe there's a one-volume trade paperback edition published by IDW, but this is another indie comic, and it's kind of slice of life. I guess, yeah, I guess it, I call it slice of life. Um, it's about a group of characters who are younger than the characters in Box Office Poison, I think these characters are in high school, maybe early college. But the similarity for me, and oh, and the other big difference is that instead of taking place in a big city like New York, the waiting place takes place in some small town in Wisconsin. But the the similarity for me in between these two books is that the waiting place is also about trying to find your way in life, trying to figure out what you want to do. The main thing with The Waiting Place is because the characters are younger and they live in a place that they want to get out of. It's about part of it is because they want to grow up and move on with life. Yeah. And they also want to just literally move to anywhere, anywhere else. else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that's a comic where the title makes sense on multiple levels because The Waiting Place is their... It's like their age, you know, that stage of, of life where when yeah. you're a teenager or an adolescent... And it's also like the literal place where they have to wait until they can go somewhere better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally makes so, sense. So I'd say if you're in the mood for another indie comic that's about similar themes, The Waiting Place by Sean McKeever, Sean Kelly McKeever, <laughs> is a good place to go. There was one other one that I wanted to mention, which was uh, Locale, Local. By Brian Wood and Low Ryan Cal. Kelly, I, I like to give it a little, you know, a little bit of that uh, that Albert flavor. You know what really make it have Albert flavor is if you use your 1920s <laughs> Chicago gangster voice. 
Ah, see? Locale, see? Ah. <laughs> it's not even a tw- 1920s gangster voice anymore. I feel like I'm just growling. <laughs> <laughs> Local by Brian Wood and Ryan Kelly, published by Oni Press. Yeah, I yeah. love that comic too, man. That's some good stuff. It's another um, like indie comic about a young a young 20 something and I, I if if i had to be completely transparent um i never i didn't read the whole thing uh, i found a bunch of issues single issues and it's the sort of comic that you can read where you can read the single issues individually and you gain something from reading them individually but i mean clearly there's also a you know, there's also a longer overarching narrative there to read. So, um, you know, I, 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 I probably haven't gotten the full effect of it, but from what I have read, it's, it's essentially about a young woman who wanders from city to city as she experiences life, you know, on the road, life and growing up on the road, you know? Yeah. Yeah, this was a series I was I when it came out I was buying the monthly issues and at the end of it I ended up just buying the hardcover because I yeah. liked the hardcover but the the interesting thing about local or I don't know if you want to call it a gimmick or the hook but the one of the things about it is that it was 12 issues and each issue was a different year in the life of the main character Megan so it starts off with her as a young lady and then you know 12 years pass by and she's a different person or just you know a more mature person by the end of the story compared to where she was at the beginning of the story so it really feels like you're getting the slice of life in the sense that each issue or each literally a slice of her life yeah yeah (laughs) it's like sending moon night to the moon (laughs) we're having daredevil fight the devil (laughs) even even in an episode where we talk about indie comics we're still (laughs) talking about (laughs) marvel characters (laughs) oh that's great all right man you have any uh, any other thoughts or anything else you want to say before we get out of here no, man, I, I I just want to reiterate the fact that you guys should all check out Box Office Poison, man. It's good stuff. Yep, Box Office Poison by Alex Robinson. Check it out. This okay. is Between the Gutters signing off. Thank you for listening. We will catch you next time. I believe in our next episode, we are going to be reading The Incal, Volume 1 by Alejandro Jodorowsky and Mobius. So stay tuned for that. I'm actually not super familiar with a lot of European comics, so I'm looking forward to checking this out and talking about it with you next time, Albert. It'll be new to us, and, and uh, it'll be fun to see what our observations and uh, and takeaways from that comic are going to be, because this is a pretty popular, pretty famous comic, well-regarded. Yeah, yeah it's just it's it's one of the big gaps in my comic book knowledge, man. I I, I don't know a lot of European comics like my. My European comics is like, okay, I've read some Judge Dredd, I've read Black Sad, uh, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Alright everybody, peace out.
You still there, Albert? Albert? I no longer hear you. Hello?